If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with General Rochambeau. He'll be answering our call in 1795 at the age of 70. In the early part of the American Revolution, the French were happy to support the American cause with guns and money and food and basically everything except soldiers. They knew that if the Americans won, it would open trade between the two countries that would significantly benefit both economies, plus they hated the English. But when the French decided to escalate by sending troops, the first attempt was a mess. The two armies let Ego get in the way, and the French troops were driven from the battlefield and overcome by the English. On the second attempt, the French king knew he needed a different kind of man who could temporarily put aside his pride to accomplish the ultimate goal of working with the Americans to win the war. Rochambeau started his military career at a young age and knew from prior military campaigns that much blood and treasure had been lost on the battlefield because egos prevented cooperation. In fact, in his first meeting with George Washington, he made it clear that he would be Washington's subordinate and would support the Americans in any way that he could. Before long, the two were working in harmony, eventually leading to the pivotal win at Yorktown. Without Rochambeau's humble leadership, it is unlikely that the cause for American liberty would have succeeded. Yet, after returning home a hero, it wasn't long before he found himself in the middle of his own revolution, was imprisoned, and then nearly lost his head at the guillotine. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers, and honorary French-Americans everywhere, I give you Rochambeau! Hello, General. Are you there? Bonjour, Kilo. Sir, my name is Tony Dean. I am talking to you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding in your hand, it's called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if we were in the same room with one another. It also allows me to share a recording of our conversation with people around the world. Uh, Sir, considering how much my country, the United States, owes you and what we owe the French, I was hoping that I could ask you some questions today, but before I do, I understand this is a very strange introduction. Can I answer any questions that you may have first? No, I do not believe so. I am most astonished by this device which you have provided me for our communication. It is unlike anything, of course, I've ever seen. I am very surprised. My understanding is that it works with electricity, as we say, and I can only imagine the strides that have been made in the domain of science since Mr. Your Mr. Franklin was so successful in, in, in working with electricity and the devices he must have been able to develop. This must have been one of them, no? No, Franklin actually isn't the one to develop it, but I will tell you this. You're, certainly you're speaking of Dr. Franklin and his, his research on electricity certainly did morph into all kinds of different technologies that allow us to do all kinds of things in our time that you probably couldn't even imagine in your time. I mean, it allows us to fly and allows us to communicate like this. We could be a thousand miles from one another in your time and just communicate on this device like like we were right next to each other. And so it's pretty amazing for sure. I will tell you this, though. 
We have information on everything. I know about your history and the history of France. We have all the kings and, and queens documented and all the wars documented. We have so much information on that. And yet the reason that I wanted to speak with you specifically today is because you are a hero to our nation. Had, there, had you not done the things that you had done, like there would be no United States of America. The country that I live in, it wouldn't exist, and yet the information about you specifically is really not that good, even with everything that we have. A lot of people, and believe it or not, in, in our time, they think that Lafayette, the Marquis de Lafayette, and you, that you're the same person. And just to be clear, you guys are not the same person, right? No, indeed, monsieur. We are not the same person. <laughs> this is the most intriguing. I am very interested to hear what questions you might have. But no, indeed, monsieur le Marquis and I are not the same person. There was a, a play, a show that was done in our time where your name was mentioned. But Marquis de Lafayette, he's one of the key players. And I think that in a way of just oversimplifying things. Some people heard your name and saw him and thought, are they the same person? Because one thing that, that is certainly interesting about your time is that in our time, we have very simple names, but in your time, you guys have very complex names. And so it would be easy <laughs> for us to mix them up. Uh, Indeed, no, I can appreciate that. In fact, we have many surnames, as we say, plus we have our family name. And then oftentimes, in the case of the Marquis de Lafayette and myself, there are names associated with the titles that we bear as well. So I can see how that might be confusing to Americans. Yeah, very much so. And I, every American that's listening to this is going to want to hear your full name. Would you mind sharing that with us? Yes, my full name is uh, Jean-Baptiste Donatien de Vimeur, Comte de Rochambeau. Right. So my first name is Jean-Baptiste, and then Donatien is a, a name that many of the men in my family carry as a secondary name. And then de Vimeur is my family name to which we have added the name de Rochambeau because that is the title that we bear. So, so my name is Tony Dean, and now you can see why we can't remember all that. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess my, my first question that I really want to ask you is that the history books kind of looked to us like the American Revolution was taking place and George Washington was struggling to, to get this done. And then all of a sudden this guy named Lafayette comes across and basically jumps in and they fight a couple battles and that is how we win the revolution when in fact it's my understanding that the support that was coming to the americans started long before lafayette or you ended up on the shores of america can you tell me what that looks like what did the support look like absolutely i am not an expert because i was doing other things at this time but I do know that France was very keen to assist the Americans in their bid for independence, primarily because we felt that if America were alienated from Great Britain, that would open up an economic advantage for France in terms of trade, in terms of transport between the two countries, and both our economies would flourish. And certainly the French economy was in need of assistance at the time because we were still suffering from the losses sustained during the previous conflict with Great Britain in Europe, the Seven Years' War, and then, of course, as you say, in North America, the French and Indian War. And so we saw this as an opportunity to regain uh, a position of power over Great Britain. We saw this as a means to establish firm ties with the American colonies, now going to be perhaps the United States. 
And that is what uh, that is what piqued the interest of our, I guess you would call him. He was the first minister of state, I guess, in British terms, perhaps that is easier. He would be considered the prime minister of His Majesty Louis XVI. The Virgin, who was very keen to, to find a way that France would be able to help, but not openly. France was not prepared for uh, an open uh, declaration of war against the British at this time. I myself was instrumental in dealing with the reformation of the French army and the French armed forces after the Seven Years' War. And even in 1776, uh, the French armed forces were not ready for a conflict of declared war with Great Britain. As a result, uh, the Grand de Vergen was uh, able to establish a secret assistance that was being funded by the French government, but not directly. Uh, what occurred were shipments of supplies, uh, uniforms or cloth for uniforms in some cases, uh, certainly weapons, certainly gunpowder, certainly munitions. These things were all being sent from France, from, a, from companies in France that were, in some cases, sending these supplies to the Caribbean, to islands that belonged either to France or, in some cases, to the Dutch, who were also sympathetic to the American cause. The Spanish were somewhat sympathetic as well, and certainly because of the relationship between our two kings. So very early on, from 1776 even, France began supplying the American colonies with weapons and clothing and other supplies to help them fight and to, uh, to get off to a good start against, at the time, the greatest army in the world, and certainly the greatest navy. And this went on for some years now, because what was happening was your Dr. Franklin, who was in Paris, obviously, at this time also, was urging the French court to provide more and more money, more and more supplies, and, God willing, uh, actual French soldiers, which was not still in view of the king or of his ministers at this time. And so what happened was the supplies kept coming, the money certainly kept coming, which allowed the Americans, your American Congress, to purchase these supplies from others like the Dutch and the Spanish as well. So the French were involved from the very, very start, but not directly with troops or with uh, the ships of the Navy. Well, I can certainly understand why the French wouldn't want to get involved right away because it just creates another level of conflict with the English. But I am curious why you would get involved with the Americans at all. I mean, I understand that if the Americans won the war, there might be some trade and all that. But if Great Britain was so big at this time, why wouldn't it make sense for the two of you just to stop fighting all the time? There's plenty of trade that I'm guessing that they would want to do with all of their colonies and all of their land that they're controlling across the world, where America is just a little dot on the map. Why even waste your time there? Why not like find common ground with France and become huge trading partners and just eliminate all the war? Well, you must look at the history between uh, England, most definitely, and Great Britain after the establishment of Great Britain in the early 18th century. Uh, such an arrangement would be unheard of in both places, first of all. Even the Comte de Vergen announced that England is the natural enemy of France. And it has been that way since the Battle of Hastings, when William the Conqueror, Guillaume de Normandie, the Duke of Normandy, crossed the English Channel in 1066, and conquered England after the Battle of Hastings and established himself as the King of England. It was from that moment on that the animosity between France and, and England was established and continued on for almost a thousand years. You're now 700 years after that event, and we've been fighting off and on 
essentially. This is no different. In, in terms of your question, in terms of the economics of the situation, uh, you must remember that the English economy, and to a certain extent the economy of France as well, was dependent upon trade with their colonies. Obviously, France had fewer colonies, and certainly fewer colonies after the end of the Seven Years' War, and the loss in North America of Louisiana, which we retroceded to Spain after that war, and certainly the loss of Nouvelle France of Canada to the English, that deprived France of a vast territory that was rich in furs and natural resources and land and the potential to establish a firmer colonial base in North America. That was the system established that made these economies what they were. And certainly in Great Britain, the British economy was founded on this notion of the colonies will provide raw materials to the mother country, and the mother country will provide all the materials that are made and fabricated in England back to these people, and we will limit their ability to buy from other countries. We will limit their trade capacity. And so, quite frankly, the economics between America and Great Britain were not as advantageous for the Americans, and they realized this perhaps at the first in the 17th century early on, that might have worked, but by 1776, I think the British overlooked and were not sensitive to the sophistication of what had developed in their colonies. Yes, these colonies had taken root, they had prospered, they had developed politically even, much more so than in England. For example, in, in North America, in an English colony like Maryland, for example, there is a legislature, there's a parliament in uh, Annapolis, Maryland, the capital of Maryland, that rules on local matters. There's no such parliament in a place like York or in Lancashire or in Cornwall. These institutions do not exist. All was decided from the parliament in London. And this was something that France was not going to be able to overcome. And England had no incentive to make a trade agreement with France because France would be in no way capacity able to provide to the English as much as their colonies did. And again, it's this jealous guarding of the resources of colonies that indicated that European countries, powerful countries at the time, like France and Great Britain and Prussia and Austria, were not going to be able to work together very effectively in terms of economics. That's, that was the nature of the way things were at the time. That makes a lot of sense. There's no real honest free trade. The king decides what's going to happen. And then you add in a thousand years of bad blood, and there was just no chance for you to find any common ground there. Well, you must remember also that the Seven Wheels War and the defeat that, that France withstood was still quite biting at this time. People have said that France goes to war for revenge against the British. Countries do not go to war for revenge. Perhaps headstrong and emotional kings might want to do that, but that is when they rely on their ministers to find other reasons why a war would be warranted. And it certainly was warranted in this case. There were certainly objectives and there were certainly advantages that France hoped to be able to reap for engagement with the American colonies, now the United States, against their former masters, Great Britain. So now what's going on is that you have the, the French have decided that they're going to send supplies. So they're going to send guns, and they're going to send uniforms, and they're going to send money, and they're sending everything. At some point, it's, at least it's my understanding, that you were put in control of the whole thing, of what was going on in America. And they said, you're the guy that's going to run the show. Am, am I right to say that? Yes, eventually that is correct. By 1780, that is the case. Between there, however, you must remember also that the Treaty of Amity and Commerce between the two countries, the United States of America and France, was signed in 1778. So for two years, 
France is now openly willing to engage with forces, primarily the Navy. But France also has, as I said, we have possessions in the Caribbean and a Navy to transport them. And so, unfortunately, while France was at that point ready to commit troops to the American cause, the engagements with the Americans did not work out very well. And there were reasons for that. There were problems on both sides. For example, the Admiral Destin, who was sent with the French uh, fleet from the Caribbean, at first he tried to land forces in Newport, Rhode Island, where I would eventually come in 1780 in the summer. But at that time, it was blockaded by a British fleet. The Admiral Destin also came with several thousand French soldiers from the Caribbean, hoping to land them there and engage the British effectively to regain Newport for the Americans. Unfortunately, the winds did not work well, the weather did not work well, and the egos of both the French and the American officers in charge did not work well at all in that endeavor. And that is something I learned many years ago during my time as a young, what we call a cornet, which is sort of like an ensign in the cavalry. It is a junior officer who is working as the most junior officer on it, uh, and in combat as well. I learned that in the, the War of the Austrian Succession, where I saw the bickerings and the egos and the, the lack of cooperation and utter mismanagement of both men and funds caused much distress, many lives lost, and not a lot of money wasted on the battlefield as a result. And I thought at that time, if I am ever made a general, if I am ever put in a position of authority, this will not happen. I will ensure that individuals do not take it upon themselves to sabotage an overall grand strategy that has been envisioned and that will work provided cooperation and mutual respect is ensured. This was not unfortunately the case for the poor Amir Destang. Unable to land the force in, in Newport and beaten off by the British fleet, he had to go back to the Caribbean. After that, the British moved their battles to the south. They launched the campaign in the southern colonies at that time. And once again, France tried to step up to lay siege to the city of Savannah in Georgia. Uh, once again, Amir Destin was involved bringing troops from the Caribbean to try and take that city or retake that city from the British. Unfortunately, despite the fact that the troops were landed and they fought valiantly, many men died on the French side as well as on the American side. They were unsuccessful in leading the city and lifting that siege. And as a result, they then had to leave because more British ships and men were coming and they had to go back to the Caribbean. So unfortunately, for all of the goodwill and the wishes of our king and the efforts of the soldiers and sailors and the Admiral Destin, as I said at the time, the cooperation was off to a somewhat rocky start, just to the point to where America believed that France was not seriously helping, and the French believed that America was, after all, much too dependent on France for this to work out in a way that would be beneficial to all that American independence would be won, and that France would be restored into the balance of power in Europe afterwards. It's at that point that we come to the end of 1779 and the concept of actually sending more forces from France, not just the Caribbean, came into play here. And for that, I will admit that Monsieur de la Fayette was somewhat instrumental in coming back to try and lobby in the court for more support and for his forces. He came back. It was not because of his sole interference. It was not because of his sole voice that this was happening. But he did come back, and shortly thereafter, the Comte d'Argen and His Majesty Louis XVI decided that now is the time that we need to send a large force from the continent 
to America to engage the British on behalf of the Americans. And that is when I came into play. In the winter of 1780, it was decided that an expeditionary force would be put together and they needed a general who would be capable of leading this force and be able to avoid the pitfalls and mistakes that had been made before in our cooperation efforts with the Americans. And that was 1780, right? That would have been in 1780. I, I am a simple soldier. I have been a soldier my entire life, and I have learned from watching the mistakes of others what one would not want to commit as a mistake when placed in command. I was chosen not because I was very close with the Minister of War at that time, the Marquis de Saint-Maurice, the Prince de Montbarry. I did not speak English. I was not an ideal choice for that very reason, because most of the time, positions of such rank and such importance are given to members of court who are very, very much involved in the court politics, which I had avoided as much as possible throughout my career. I had been at Versailles. My mother had been the governess of the children of the Duc d'Orient, to whom I was made an aide-de-camp in the Seven Years' War. But nonetheless, it is what one does to advance in certainly a military career. As I'm listening to you talk about this, and I, I was going to ask you why you were chosen for this, and you obviously just explained that, but when you think of war, you think of the thing that wins wars is guns and soldiers and ships mm -hmm. and munitions. And yet, the thing that you bring to the shores is this understanding that there are huge egos at play here, and you've got to get control of that first, because if everybody exactly. is... Exactly. Yeah, if everybody's not working together at the exact same time, then, then nothing's going to work at all. Now, I had no idea, General, that there had been, that somebody had landed on Rhode Island before you did and did not have success. And then they landed in the South and didn't have success. So Absolutely. So there were people on the shores long before you, and it, they just couldn't get it together because there was too much infighting. Exactly. And in, in all fairness, the, the British force was superior. Uh, the weather, again, did not work in favor of, of Admiral Destin. And as a result, it was the, the start of the actual military cooperation was somewhat rocky from the start, unfortunately. Then you decided to send an expeditionary force. When I was learning about this, I had this impression that the force that you had sent over was just this gigantic, overwhelming force. Like, I picture like 100,000 men, and that's what turned the tide because the English, their army was so huge and so powerful. But that was not even close to, how many people did you come over with? No, not at all. That is absolutely correct. I had requested 8,000 soldiers to be sent with the Expedition Particulière, and I had been given eventually somewhere around 6,000. And because the ships were limited, I was only able to part with 5,500. The others had to remain in Brittany, waiting for more ships and waiting for yet another British fleet to be dispensed with off the shelves of off the coast of France in order for them to come. As a result, I landed with far fewer men than I had requested and far more than I'd hoped to be able to bring, even from those I did have at my disposal. As a result, when we landed in, eventually in Rhode Island, we waited there almost a year. We were waiting for the other troops to arrive, first of all. We were waiting for more money to arrive as well. And we were waiting for a strategy to be developed by General Washington. I will tell you that I had been given a letter signed by His Majesty, which says that I was directed not to open until 10 days 
out at sea. And when I did that, I discovered that what he had written to me was that I was to be the commanding general in charge of the Expedition Particulière, that is, all of the French soldiers having been sent to America, but that I would be the subordinate of George Washington, that I would be his lieutenant, if you will, that I would be there to serve. And I made that statement as soon as I landed and, and was able to communicate with General Washington that I came here to serve, not to command. When you open this letter and you realize that, I mean, France is far more powerful than the United States at this point, I'm guessing. And for you to check your ego right there and go to Washington, who is just trying to create this country that doesn't even exist yet, and say, I'm here to serve you. I mean, had you not had that that moment where you said, I'm not going to let egos play a role in this, there's no way the two of you could have gotten along. No, absolutely not. But once again, I am I am a different person than others who are there. My my curriculum is different. I learned at a very young age how to work with with soldiers and with other commanders and with those with egos, by the way. That was indispensable both on the battlefield and at court. It was not possible to advance without having to be able to reason, to convince, to advise, to to counsel. And eventually I was fairly successful in most of my endeavors and in, in, in being able to convince people of my sincerity and my ability to listen, for example, to make observations and incorporate those into planning of a larger strategy that would go much further than the immediate. And that was what was called for in this case. The Comte de Vergen was very aware of this. He could see, as you pointed out, that with so few soldiers, both on the American side and even on the French side with the expedition, that the British could far outnumber us in almost every endeavor we chose to, to take. And as a result, it, it required extreme planning capacity. It, it required extreme patience. And it required extreme dedication to working on the efficiencies of the resources put at our disposal. So when you first come to, you land on Rhode Island, and now you meet George Washington, and you meet the American fighting man, and then you basically just have to sit on your hands for a year. I'm guessing that you, you have some concept of what your first impression was of George Washington and just the American fighting man in general. I mean, what was your impression? Were these people lazy? Were they passionate? I mean, what did, what was your, what did you see? Well, first of all, you must remember that I did that with George Washington immediately. In fact, that was of some consternation for myself because instead I, I met first with the Marquis de Lafayette, whom, as we have pointed out, was not Within my command, he was an, an American general under the command of George Washington himself. Okay, uh, I, got, I got to interrupt you there. Okay, now that is super interesting. So you say that Lafayette was not under your command. I thought he was under your command, but he was. How is he a Frenchman under under American command? Can you explain that? Oh yes, absolutely. Well, first you must remember that uh, Lafayette. Uh, had been in the United States for uh, some time uh, as well. He was not the only one, by the way. Uh, he had come with uh, a port of 2,000 young, uh, valiant French officers who, quite frankly, had disobeyed the orders that came directly from the king that they would not get directly involved in the conflict in America against the British. And nonetheless, they left under their own authority and with their own funding and came here 
and applied themselves to the American army. Uh, by the time I arrived in 1780, there were almost 90 Frenchmen serving as officers in the American military, in the Continental Army. So Lafayette was not alone. He was here with many other Frenchmen. But nonetheless, they were wearing American uniforms, and they were serving in the Continental Army, not in any of the French regiments who were sent here under the Expedition Particulière and under my command. And they did that. They disobeyed your king, his direct his orders not to get involved. Do you suppose, well, I have two questions about that. Number one is, are there no consequences to disobeying the king, the French king? And I suppose also, if there are 90 French officers, why does Lafayette stand out so much? Well, the first, the, to answer your first question, yes, indeed, there would be consequences. But by the time Lafayette went back, you recall I mentioned that Lafayette went back shortly before the decision was made to assemble an expedition particulière. Lafayette was put under house arrest. This was not a very strong punishment, but by this time, the support in France itself among the aristocracy, among the middle classes, was so high that it would have been foolish to put him in prison, to have punished him in some very harsh way. And His Majesty realized this and also realized that Lafayette had been an effective liaison between the United States and France, if on an official one. France had an ambassador here. You had Dr. Franklin and others who were in Paris working on behalf of the United States. But Lafayette, based on his personal relationship with George Washington, you must remember that George Washington considered him almost as a son, and Lafayette, who lost his father at a very, very young age, looked to Washington almost as a father figure. And Lafayette was very dedicated to the cause. Washington could appreciate that, could see it and appreciated that, and could see that his passion and his emotion was sincere, and that he truly was working for the cause of liberty. Lafayette had, in fact, as I recall, Lafayette had volunteered to serve without pay, and he was very wealthy. He did not need the pay to be able to do this. So yes, there were consequences for these men, but because the war had been going somewhat more successfully, especially after the Battle of Saratoga, and the great American victory over a huge British force, it is at that point that the population in France rose up and in support of the American independence movement. It would not have been politically advantageous to the court if, if any of these men had come back and been severely punished for this. So politically, it made more sense to make them heroes than prisoners. Absolutely. That is a very good way to put it. And that is exactly what happened, certainly in the case of Lafayette. He was immediately recognized when he came back as an American a Frenchman, American, uh, working for the cause of American independence. And here he was back in France with his American uniform and, and seeking further assistance with this cause of liberty in, in the New World. Had he come back to, and I suppose many of these 90 officers, these French officers, had he come back and they had not been effective and just the opposite, I'm guessing they would have come back to France and maybe lost a little weight, like in the, in the upper part of their body. <laughs> Like the head area. Well, I think I know of which you speak. No, at that time, that was not, that would not have been the punishment. And certainly not for uh, these men who came from the upper echelons of French society. They would have perhaps been banished from court for a period of time, which, as I said before, if you are not present at court, your chances of advancement are deeply diminished. And, and as a result, your honor loses, again, some tarnish, if you will. 
and that is it, it is simply not it's not a an enviable position, but it's certainly not mortal. Uh, it's not deadly. So I do not believe that anyone would have been executed for having served in the American Army at that time. That would not be something that would have been done to any of the men of this class at the time anyway. That makes sense. I know later in your life, that kind of punishment changed quite a bit, and I'm hoping we, we might address that a little bit later. But before we do, let's talk about George Washington for a minute. You mentioned George Washington before, and you asked for my impressions of him when I first, yes. first met him. I was deeply impressed. First of all, you must remember that I am only, I am not very great in stature, and George Washington, who is a colossus, if you will, uh, extremely tall man and imposing, and, but imposing in a very gentle, in a very calm way. This does not mean, by the way, that George Washington never lost his temper. Uh, I have seen George Washington lose his temper before, and it is not a pleasant sight, neither for those who observe it, neither for those whose ire he has raised. But I will say that I found him to be a very willing listener, someone who was willing to be mentored, if you will, throughout this engagement. He had some ideas that we did not agree on. Fortunately, I was able to convince him otherwise of what his original plans had been. But I found him to be a most agreeable person. I regret, regretted deeply at the time. I spoke no English, and so we could not communicate except through translators and interpreters. Our plans were written down and translated by our staff officers. Our words exchanged had to go through the mouth of an interpreter from one or both sides to make sure we were clear on what we were saying. And it, it initially was very difficult to overcome the boundaries of personal character, if you will, that are imposed by such an arrangement. But I believe that we were able to overcome those difficulties. And, and I truly believe that when I left, that George Washington and I were friends. And I believe that our correspondence after my return to France would support that, that notion. I, I, I have to imagine that at some point in history, there's been a moment where two brilliant men like yourself and President Washington, that the two of you got together but were unable to communicate and brought in the interpreter, and the interpreter was a spy and passed along incorrect information. And I wonder if there are any safeguards in place to prevent something like that when you first met. Well, at the time we were meeting, we met first in Hartford, Connecticut. We met in Connecticut, which was at least the eastern part of the state. At the time, was firmly in continental hands. And so the risk, obviously, you are correct, the risk of espionage against our plans, against our meetings, against what we discussed, was certainly out there. But George Washington was himself very keenly aware of the requirement for counterintelligence methods that had to be in place to prevent such things from happening. We know that on the march after we got to New York, on the march south, we know that, that the camp in Phillipsburg, New York, had been penetrated by, on one occasion, certainly by a young woman who was a British spy. And when we were planning to come south, once the plan had been made to go to Yorktown and, and, and take on uh, Lord Cornwallis, we knew that we had to ensure that all of our plans remained as secret as possible, as secret as can be made a march of some 700 miles with over 5,000, 6,000 soldiers from both sides, if you will. And we were able to, to do that fairly effectively, I think. It, but it was something that he knew very much from the start was a risk. And he took precautions to ensure that did not happen to a great extent. So I don't, I don't think that uh, we ran that risk so much when we first met 
in Connecticut, but certainly as we got closer to New York, which was firmly held by the British with several thousand British soldiers, British ships, and the rest of it, that the, the risk grew greater that our, our plans might be revealed as we were in, in the area of New York. I had read that, speaking of espionage, I, I have read that you were a high-value target by the British when they found out that you were helping, and that you occasionally used disguises. Do you recall any of that? Well, obviously, we were very secretive about what we did. When we arrived at New York, we still had not made the decision that we would, rather than attacking New York, which was what George Washington had wanted to do all along, we had still not made the decision to move south to Yorktown at that point. In the region of New York, we undertook what we called the Grand Reconnaissance, where we would, we ourselves would go out and spy, if you will, on the British fortifications, on the movement of the British ships on the Hudson, on the city of New York, from what we could see. All those sorts of things we ourselves took on. We had our aide-de-camp would do the same thing. We had other people who would file reports with us, but we ourselves would go out and look and see. And on those occasions, it was most prudent that, that perhaps we shield our identity from any onlookers in the area, because you have to remember that not only was New York held by thousands of British soldiers, but you had an enormous number of loyalist Americans who would have been very glad to have captured the French general, or an American general for that matter, uh, and turned them over to the British for a reward. And so uh, it was during those times where the ruses of which we speak were most uh, important and mostly utilized was at, at that point, because we ourselves were in, in pseudo-enemy territory, if you will. So let's talk about Yorktown. So here you, you start up in Rhode Island, you wait for a year, and so let's see, you land in 1780, Yorktown is a year later, and then before that I think was a Battle of Chesapeake, were you involved in that? The Battle of the Chesapeake was a naval battle. In fact, uh, it is referred to often as the Battle of the Chesapeake, but also as the Battle of the Virginia Capes or the Battle of the Capes. <clears throat> this was a result of the a French fleet, once again, coming up from the Caribbean, this time under the, uh, the command of the Amiral Comte de Grasse. I had written to the Comte de Grasse explaining the situation that I was very concerned about what was happening in Yorktown, with the movement of British troops there, with the fact that I knew that Lord Cornwallis had been instructed by General Clinton in New York that he was to proceed with the potential preparations for the building of a deep water port for the Royal Navy, which had that happened, it is most likely that the southern states would have been lost and perhaps the entire bid for American independence would have been lost as well. Wow. So I was very keen to prevent that from happening, and I imparted that to General Washington, which formed part of the calculus as to why he ultimately changed his mind concerning an attack against New York and moving south to assault Yorktown. But I had written the Admiral de Grasse, who I also did not command. He was my equivalent in the Navy. He had been put at the disposal of the Expedition Particulière, but he himself was his own commander. And I wrote to him and I said, you must come to either New York or you must come to the Chesapeake Bay area. Here's what we are facing, here's what we are seeing, and here is what my recommendations are. I heard back from Admiral de Grasse saying he had decided he would come to the Chesapeake Bay. So in a way, that precluded the decision that Washington ultimately was compelled to make because it made the most sense and because the greater danger was there. 
that we should move south to Yorktown. But Amiel de Grasse arrived in late August. There was an additional skirmish with a British fleet that was there. It came to nothing. It was, at best, a draw. Both fleets were treated from the bay, and that was known as the First Battle of the Capes. The second battle took place on the 5th of September, in which Amiel de Grasse decisively defeated the British fleet there, drove them from the bay, and was able to establish his fleet there at the mouth, preventing another British force from attempting to either come to uh, send the Royal Navy with more ships, or to send other ships to attempt to evacuate and relieve Cornwallis's soldiers at Yorktown. Uh, in this capacity, Yorktown was essentially blocked from the sea, and we were already on the way by that time, obviously. Uh, but, um, but that is the Battle of the Capes of which you speak. A- Admiral de Grasse, had he not won that battle, there would have been a completely different outcome of this war. Is that what you're saying? Oh, absolutely. Potentially, that is true. That is potentially quite true. That would have been the assumption we would make. In fact, we decided we would wait because we knew that Admiral de Grasse had arrived. In fact, it, I'll tell you a story. It was interesting on the way down from New York once we were on the move. Uh, we'd, we'd gone through Philadelphia. This is at the same time around the, the 5th of September is when the French army marched through Philadelphia, the very day of the engagement with the, with the ships in the Chesapeake. And once we had left Philadelphia, Washington continued by land to Chester, Pennsylvania. I continued on a small boat down the river with my staff. And as we were approaching the docks in Chester, we saw General Washington jumping on the, on, on the docks and waving his hat and shouting, and we couldn't make out what he was saying, but eventually we got there, and he says to us that he's here. Admiral de Grasse had arrived in the Bay Area on the 30th of August, and he was, he was beside himself with joy. The Duc de Lausanne, who was there as well, and of course you know about the cavalry of the Duc de Lausanne, what role they played in the, in the Yorktown campaign. He wrote, I never have seen a man more thoroughly and more openly delighted than was General Washington at that moment. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, uh, the, the Dupont, uh, in charge of the Dupont Regiment, who was of such uh, quality and of such importance in taking uh, one of the redoubts that uh, Yorktown <laughs> stated, a child whose wishes had been satisfied, could not have expressed a more lively expression of pleasure. Uh, I was astounded because Washington actually hugged me, which is something I did not ever expect would ever happen. But he was clearly overjoyed with the news that Amiel de Grasse had arrived and realized <laughs> how important this was. Uh, and as I said, five days later, he succeeded in this, in this Battle of the Capes and, and uh, blocked Cornwallis from the sea. Remember also that Cornwallis was blocked as well by the fact that Amiel de Grasse had been able to offload another 3,200, almost 4,000 French soldiers from the Caribbean once more, as well as the soldiers being commanded by Generals Lafayette and von Steuben in Virginia at that time. And, uh, and so we were in a very good stead from the time we learned of de Grasse's arrival that Cornwallis really had no place to move and nowhere he could go and no means to escape. All right, of his was... pleas to General Clinton had been left unanswered. And, and when finally General Clinton decided to do something, it was too late. I guess I didn't realize how big of a, a moment that was, but that obviously was very significant. And I'm never going to get this picture of Washington jumping up and down on the dock, waving his hands. That's going to be... one you do not forget. Yeah, that's, that's one I'm not going to forget. He is quite a tall man. 
Yeah, you'd mentioned that earlier, and I have always pictured, because I know your role, I've always pictured you as looking eye-to-eye with him. Are you not a tall person? Oh, no. Oh, no. I am, I am quite short in stature, actually. My, my father was born crippled, and while he could not serve in the military, he was still made a chevalier of Saint-Louis, but anyone has given many important roles representing the king in the Vendôme area where we, where we are from, and other offices as well, other important high-ranking governorships and so forth. But uh, I do not come from a family of men of a great stature, at least since perhaps the Middle Ages. There have been some people in French history that did some pretty extraordinary things that weren't as tall as Washington. I, I don't know if you've had any run-ins, in, depending on what the date is yet, with a person by the name of Napoleon yet. Does that name ring a bell? Ah, yes, monsieur. I know of whom you speak. Right now, uh, we call him General Bonaparte. Uh, he was known as Napoleon Bonaparte. He was from Corsica, which was an island that France only acquired in the middle of the 18th century and was uh, populated by a largely Italian Corsican. Corsican is basically a dialect of Italian, and it was ruled by the city of Genoa in Italy up until that time. And they fought the war on independence against the city of Genoa and gained independence, but then chose to become part of France because France assisted in this endeavor. And, and as a result, Corsica is French, but for less, at, at this time in 1795, it's less than 50 years, I, will, I would say. But yes, no, Napoleon, the uh, general Bonaparte, was most instrumental in relieving the, the city of Toulon in the south of France in 1793 against a British attack against the revolutionary government that had been installed in Toulon. What had happened is that the, the British had come in to assist the citizens of Toulon who had mounted essentially a counter-revolution against the revolutionary government, against the Republic at that time, and General Bonaparte came with others to take the city back. This was an, a phenomenon that was happening in many cities in France in 1793. Oddly enough, one of the admirals in charge of defending Toulon against the General Bonaparte and the Republican attack was Admiral Hood. Admiral Hood was one of the admirals in the British Royal Navy at the time off the coast of America during the American War of Independence. So it is a very small world, I believe, as you say. It is a small uh, world, you're right. We, we don't know who General Bonaparte is right now. He is a general, of, a military man of great promise. As myself, as I said, I am a military man. I have I have some respect for his talent and his Ambition, I am not sure about, but so far he has proven to be a very capable military leader. Let's go back to Yorktown now. So now what happens is that naval battle, we're in good shape on that, and now it's time to march to Yorktown. Was this your idea? Was this Washington's idea? How does this come about where you decide that Yorktown is the place to go next? Well, we had known that the guards was coming. He had corresponded back saying his decision was to go to the Chesapeake Bay area. And it's at that point that I was able to press General Washington for a decision on what we were going to do. There were three events that happened that helped convince him that were done both on the French part and by the American side as well. Albeit, I will tell you, one of these 87 Frenchmen in the American army was also instrumental in working to make it clear from an engineering standpoint that an attack on New York was then extremely costly. So the, the first event that occurred was, as I, as I said, the Grand Reconnaissance that we undertook for several days around New York. Uh, we showed that there were more troops than we had previously considered in New York 
at the time. And in fact, a British regiment from Pensacola in Florida had arrived to serve as reserve forces in the New York area. So we did not know of that at the time, learned of it later, and realized that there were far more troops than we thought. The engineering required to take New York would have been another siege. At the time, of course, siege warfare, as we did at Yorktown, siege warfare requires that the engineers dig trenches, and they keep digging trenches closer and closer to the objective so that artillery can be moved up closer to fire. In New York, it would have been very difficult to get ground high enough to do this and to keep moving forward. It would have taken much time to do this, and it would have taken perhaps 20,000 men on our part to be able to do this. We did not have near that many, obviously. And the third event that happened was the fact that we received news that Admiral de Grasse had decided to go to the Chesapeake area as, a, as opposed to coming to New York, to New England. So those were the three things that helped me convince Washington that that was what we needed to do. Did you find Washington indecisive? No, I did not find him indecisive at all. He was very clear in what he wanted to do. This objective to, to attack New York and retake New York was a plan he had harbored and cherished for many years since New York had fallen to the British early at the outset of the American Revolution. He had wanted nothing more than to retake New York for symbolic reasons, if nothing else. New York had served as the largest city in all of the colonies. It had served as perhaps the eventual capital. It would serve hopefully as the eventual capital of the country. And he felt that this was something that he needed to do to be able to prove to the British that if they could take New York, that all the rest would be lost and therefore it would be of no use fighting. And hopefully it would have made Great Britain come to terms and grant the independence that they had so desperately sought. I will tell you that on the 12th of August, we met at Washington's headquarters near Phillipsburg, the Odell House in actually Hartsdale, New York, to, to finally formulate the grand strategy that we needed to move south. I will tell you that it was not a necessarily pleasant conversation. It was the discussion points were sharp in some cases. There was unpleasantness in the disagreement. I was very reticent to talk about it or to admit it at the time and even later, but now after so many years, I will tell you that it, it was more than just reason that had to prevail with General Washington to convince him that the right decision was to not take New York at this time, just leave it alone. We deal with a more imminent problem that we actually had a very good chance of success. And New York would fall eventually, as it did, after Yorktown anyway. And it, it took quite a bit of convincing from both myself, my staff, and Washington's American staff as well. But ultimately, he did listen to reason, as he was wont to do. Once he had expressed himself, once he had perhaps lost his temper, he regained his composure very quickly and <laughs> was able to move on from there. And, and the result was that we began leaving at the end of August from a place called Dobbs Ferry in south of New York City and began our march across New Jersey at that time into Pennsylvania and from then on down through to Yorktown. Washington somehow, I don't understand it, but it's almost like he had a, a way to look into the future, even when it was difficult, and he wanted New York more than anything, clearly. Somehow he found the way to the right answer most of the time somehow. Yes, absolutely. I would say that I found George Washington, General Washington, His Excellency, to be a most apt, capable, and willing student when presented with facts in a coherent logical manner for which there is 
a reasonable outcome to be achieved. Most of the time, he was very reserved. He was very dignified. He was very polite and well-mannered and all the rest of it. But this is normal. He is a gentleman, so it is not surprising. And I think that any of the unpleasantness of which I spoke was due more to his impatience and his emotion and passion and the fact that he knew that uh, the longer this conflict continued, the less likely independence would be achieved and the more suffering would happen with both his soldiers who had been away for many years, as had himself, by the way. He did not go back home again until we marched south. And we did spend three days in Mount Vernon and went to Yorktown. But he, of course, as I said, was a wealthy man. He was a gentleman. He was a plantation owner. He was very, he had a very high status as commanding general of the Continental Army at this time. And not everyone was in the same economic or social circumstances. And he was very conscious of this and could see the suffering that his men were, were going through. And we haven't discussed this, but you asked me my impressions before of Washington and of the Continental Army. I will tell you that I have never seen an armed fighting force in such despair in terms of want. They needed everything. They had almost nothing. They had no shoes. They had, in some cases, only shirts, no coats even in the winter. They had no stockings. And in fact, on the way to Yorktown, I decided that the French, despite the heat, which was a regrettable decision because we had several men who fainted, we almost had to leave 800 men in the hospital at Williamsburg because of the heat exhaustion. But we marched out in full dress uniform. The Americans marched out as best they could with the uniforms that they had, and they were issued powder, flour with which they powdered their hair. We French, we had hair powder made for this purpose, but the Americans were determined that they would show the citizens of Williamsburg, that the Americans were proud to be going, and they had put on the best of what they had, but it was flour in their hair. They powdered so it, it, their it, hair it, with flour, flour that you would eat? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. I, so the Americans, they just have nothing. They have no, no shoes, no clothes, probably low on ammunition, and still you march down to Yorktown. So I will tell happened? you, though, that when we arrived at a place called Head of Elk, in Maryland, where some of the soldiers were boarded on small boats and went, most of the soldiers, in fact, did arrive in Yorktown via water. They left from Elk, they left from Baltimore, they left from Annapolis, finally. The only ones who went to Yorktown were mainly myself, you know, Washington, Afstars, the Lausanne Legion, and the wagon train carrying the artillery, and the supplies for everyone, but the, so most of the soldiers were spared, having to march all the way to Yorktown. But it had a elk. The Continental soldiers, I won't say it was a mutiny, but they, were, they voiced extreme displeasure and concern with the fact that they had now come this far and they had not been paid for months. So I myself, I personally gave Washington a loan of 26,000 uh, livres, which was not a great sum of money, which provided one month's salary to the soldiers present. At that point, they were overjoyed and they continued the march on. But it, it, it came to positions and situations like that where even a small amount of money turned things around. I will tell you that 26,000 livres, 2,000 livres, I believe, is somewhere akin to 25,000 of your American dollars. That that is incredible. I had no idea that you had actually contributed your own funds to pay for the soldiers. Well, it was either that or we not move forward. 
Rochambeau paints a bleak picture of the American soldier, and yet, despite the odds of fighting with this ragtag army against the greatest army in the world, he continued moving forward with Washington and did the impossible. In the next episode, you'll hear more about the Battle of Yorktown and the abysmal circumstances he found himself in during the French Revolution and the Reign of Terror. I'm glad you're enjoying the podcast. If you haven't yet, subscribe now, and we'll see you at the next episode of the Calling History Podcast with part two of Rochambeau.